Well, how was your homework this week? Tough. Tough. <laughs> yeah, this was this was not a, an easy passage. Uh, last week, we looked at what what was really the benefits of life in Christ and why those benefits make it truly worth it. Romans 8 is an encouraging and positive passage. It has a very climactic feel to it, almost. It concludes that section of chapter 6 through 8 where Paul is addressing some of those objections that he knew would be coming from the Roman believers. And then we start reading chapter 9. Chapters 9 through 11 are a complete change of direction. Um, It it feels almost awkward and out of place. It's almost an an interruption because here he starts talking about Israel. And and, we've we've had this, this great thing about talking about life in Christ. And then chapters 12 through 15 are going to be a discussion of how we should be living um, in Christ. And here we are with three chapters about Israel. Um, what was the word you used at the very beginning when you were describing chapter 8? Uh, something feel to it. Climactic. Uh, who? Climactic. Like, um, climactic. Yeah. <laughs> so we'll pause for just a minute because for us to understand truly why Paul is talking about Israel, we have to remember some of those things about Paul. And so um, this is a passage we have read before, but we're going to look at Philippians 3, verses 4 through 6. Though I myself have reason for such confidence... If anyone else thinks he has reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews in regard to the law, a Pharisee as for zeal, uh, persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. So what are those, some of those things that Paul previously counted on for his salvation prior to coming to Christ? What were some of those things that were listed? Lineage, education, heritage, circumcision. The tribe of Benjamin. From, from the tribe of Benjamin. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews, so he would have been... Uh, uh, Pharisee or uh, Pharisee, uh, which which meant Pharisee. he was extremely familiar with the law, would have been trained in in the Old Testament law, and then he said at the end, um, the word the word whichever version I was reading said blameless, but I think yours said faultless mm-hmm. under the law, under the letter of the law he was blameless, right? And these are things that not just Paul saw of himself, but the other Jews would have seen of him as well. And yet Paul then became a traitor to the Jewish nation. He started preaching Christ in in the synagogues. He began teaching freedom from the law of Moses. He was ministering to Gentiles. And so here's, here's Paul, who was all these things Jewish, 
all these things Israel has completely turned away from, from the teachings of Judaism and has turned to Christ, was doing everything that was apparently to the Jews in opposition of them. Um, and yet Paul interrupts with chapters 9 through 11 with this, this it, it, what's really a necessary argument for justification by faith, but it also shows Paul's love for the Jewish people. And so he is, he is going back to his roots and showing, um, truly showing that heart for Israel, that he hasn't abandoned Israel in this. But he's also showing us a very important piece of doctrine. That's what Romans is doing, but he's, he's answering the question about the character of God. Basically, if, if Israel was the, the chosen people, right, they were already chosen, why did we have to talk about election in chapter 8? Because Israel was the chosen, not these others that were chosen. And so basically... Paul is, is answering the question of if God was not faithful to the Jews, then how do we know he'll be faithful to the Christian? And so that's kind of what, um, how Paul goes, goes in these chapters is how he is, um, how he's responding to that, that thought. And so today, as we look at chapter 9 of Romans, we're going to see how Israel's past truly magnified the attributes of God. Uh, Timothy Keller says the question of Jewish unbelief is of vital importance, not only to first century churches containing both Jews and Gentiles, but for us too. It takes us deep into who God is and how he works. And so let's jump into our passage, uh, Romans 9, 1 through 5. So Paul wrote with great joy in chapter 8. But now in chapter 9, we see a really deep sadness. He, he uses the words in the, in the ESV, which is what's printed in your handouts, he uses great sorrow and unceasing anguish to describe his, his emotion. Now, Paul's past as a Christian has not been easy. And so um, 2 Corinthians 6, 4 through 10 Truthful speech in the power of God, that weapons of righteousness in the right hand may not 
Through glory and dishonor, they have report and good report. Genuine yet regarded as impostors, men yet regarded as unknown, dying and yet we live on, beaten and yet not killed. Sorrowful, sorrowful, but always rejoicing, poor yet making many rich, having nothing and yet possessing everything. So, so Paul's been through a lot. What are some of those things that he, he went through? We don't have to list all of them. Pick, I mean, even not just from that verse, something you know about Paul that he, where he suffered. He was put in prison. Imprisoned. Shipwrecked. Shipwrecked, beaten. I, I appreciated in reading that passage where it said sleepless nights and hunger. I think those were two of the things that were mentioned that kind of caught me off guard on that one. You know, he is very familiar with suffering. He's experienced many things that could bring him great sorrow and unceasing anguish. And yet those aren't the reason here in our in our in chapter 9 why he is experiencing those emotions. So so why is it why is it that he's uh, in great sorrow and unceasing anguish. Because the Jewish people are lost. They're not responding, They're not to, responding to Christ. Yeah. They have, they have rejected the gospel. And in fact, he is so anguished, what is he willing to give up? His own salvation. For the, for, the, for the nation of Israel to be saved. He was so moved that he would give up all those benefits of the gospel that he just finished writing about, all because he loves Israel. He didn't let this, plan, this pain change his mind about God or about election. He stood firm in his belief, yet he lived in great sorrow and unceasing anguish. And so as we look at these chapters over the next couple of weeks, I want you to think about Paul's, Paul's mentality here, his emotions here. And I want to challenge you to think about in this area. Do you feel this strongly about the people you love that are lost? What are you doing about it? If Paul was willing to give up his salvation for the salvation of others. What am I feeling? And then what am I doing about it for the lost that are in my life? So Paul knew that the Jews had every opportunity to know and accept Jesus as Messiah. Um, And in verses four and five, He lists a lot of God-given benefits that they have as Israelites. And so if we look at verses 4 and 5, what are some of the the things that um, that Paul lists? Adoption. Adoption. So adoption, um, if you, we're not going to read it, but um, Exodus 4, 22 and 23 the Lord is, is giving Moses his like pep talk on the way back to Egypt. 
And he tells Moses that he needs to, to tell Pharaoh that Israel is his firstborn son. This is preparing Israel to approach God on intimate terms, right? What else, what else does he say? The covenants. So those are, there are th- three major ones that, that Paul is, is referring to here. That's the covenant with Abraham in Genesis 15, with Moses in Exodus 24, and with, Samuel, or with David in 2 Samuel 23. God promises to bless them, and he tells them each of the future Messiah. Yes? Um, Abraham is Genesis 15. Moses is Exodus 24. And David is 2 Samuel 23. What else? The law in in Deuteronomy four eight, God gives the law. It's to govern them politically, socially, religiously. But if we go back in our minds, way back, probably September, to Romans two, if we truly understand the law, then we know that there is no way that we can, we can earn our salvation. And so the Jews would have known that as well. They would have had that same, um, that same understanding in some ways, that there was never a way that they could meet it perfectly. But they did sacrifices, they, which may, maybe mentally... Right, right. It went, and, and that's part of what we talked about last week, two weeks ago, sometime... With, with it being a, a surface-level obedience, but not a heart-level obedience, right. right? Yeah. What else did God give to the Israelites? Going back, the glory. The glory. When we think about the glory, the glory of the Lord, Exodus 40, uh 34 through 38, that's the pillar of cloud actually entering the tabernacle. And then in 1 Kings chapter 8, it actually physically enters the temple. This is the actual manifestation of God. It's the same thing that Moses beheld on Mount Sinai in Exodus 24. Um, and then in John 1:14 tells us of a new version of the glory with the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, right? So the glory. What else? Promises. Promises. Too many to list here today because there's like hundreds of them. Um, but these are, these are those Old Testament prophecies and promises about the Messiah. I was just looking yesterday for something different that was not this Bible study, trying to look at different passages that were prophecies about the coming of Christ. And, and it was, I mean, the list was, you know, you would, you would look it up on Google and be like 600 prophecies from the Old Testament about, and, and 572, you know, all these big numbers, and, and those lists weren't exhaustive, right? So there are just too many to even list, but 
they were given these promises. They were familiar with the Old Testament and that someone was coming, that a Messiah was being promised and would be there. And what else? Worship. Hebrews 9 tells us a little more about this, but the the goal or the the point in what Paul is saying is that that there is an an order to worship. There are God-given rituals. Um these these rituals in the in the Old Testament are what show us that we can't we we couldn't just approach God however we wanted. That we do need that mediator of Christ to have that closeness or that mediator of the priest who has gone through those those uh, steps. Um, so we can approach God because Christ and the Holy Spirit are our intercessors. Um, they needed the priests and, and things like that to do that. Um, and then in verse 5, it talks about the patriarchs. Um, and when Paul is likely not just talking about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, when we think about the patriarchs, you know, those are the patriarchs. But he's probably also considering Joseph, Moses, Joshua, Samuel, David. Virtually all of them in some way foreshadowed the coming Christ. But then it's the interesting thing is there in verse 5 it says and from their race according to the flesh is the christ jesus was jewish it was a great honor to have the savior of the world in your same bloodline it should have made it easier for them to relate to jesus than for anyone else to relate to him and so they had all of this, and yet they still missed it. Uh, Warren Wiersbe says, The purpose of all this blessing was that Jesus Christ, through Israel, might come into the world. All of these blessings were given freely to Israel and to no other nation. But Israel failed to recognize the Messiah. And Paul was heartbroken because of it. But then we get to um, the next part, uh, Romans 9, 6 through 13. But it is not that the word of God has taken no effect, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel, nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham. But in Isaac your seed shall be called. That is, those who are the children of the flesh these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as the seed. For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac, for the children are not yet being born, nor have done, having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God, according to election, might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. It was said to her, The older shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. And so in, in verse 
six there in the in the ESV it uses the word failed but it is not as though the word of God has failed um, there's a lot to this word in terms of grammatical usage and those things like I was just telling Joyce a few minutes ago grammar is not my strong suit um, but what I can tell you is it literally means to fall out. It gives a sense of falling from, from its place. It, but figuratively, it pictures a ship going off course. That's kind of the, the visual that, that it has. And so it's, and he's saying, but it's not as though the word of God has gone off course. It's not as though the word of God is in vain. God is faithful no matter what people may choose to do with his word. And then Paul tells us that we have to define Israel properly. So here's the place where we have to, well, one of many places, where we have to slow down, take all those words that Paul writes, and put it together to see what he really means. And so he's looking at at first here at Abraham's sons, both of them. He fathered two children, Ishmael and Isaac. And yet the quote in verse 7, it's from Genesis 21, 12, if you're interested, says that it is through Isaac. That leaves half of Abraham's sons that are not chosen. That's half the bloodline, right? And so it's Abraham's spiritual seed versus his natural or physical seed. And then the same is true for the sons of Isaac. He also had two sons, Esau and Jacob. And yet the line went through the younger, Jacob. And God's election was not based on the physical. Because in both cases, it was the second born. Um, Warren Wiersbe says, therefore, if the nation of Israel, Abraham's physical descendants, has rejected God's word, this does not nullify God's elective purposes at all. Because we see that it's not purely genetic. In verses 11 through 13, we see that it's not based on their character or behavior either. God uh, God chooses Jacob before the twins were born, before they had done anything to prove themselves good or evil. And this choice was not based on character or conduct. Now, I know what you're thinking, because I would have had the same thought too. Yeah, God told Rebecca before they were gone, but God is sovereign. He knew what each of those boys were going to do with their lives. And while this is true... We have to trust what's written in verse 11, where it says, not because of works, but because of him who called. The only difference between Esau and Jacob was God's purpose of election, like he said in verse 11. Now, election is one of those um, Bible words that can cause a lot of uh, strife, um, but that, that it, it means to pull out or to choose. 
and it is God's choice to bless through grace. The only reason that Jacob received the promise was because God graciously made a choice of choosing Jacob. It's an easy concept to understand, a harder concept to accept. Yes. I think someday our little pea brains can't figure it out and someday we'll be like, oh, that was it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it is one of those that that it will all make sense in the in the end. Uh, and we have to trust in that. Um, but it also is something that the more you the more you learn and and dig not that you'll ever completely understand it, but it starts to sort of not be an issue anymore for you. Like you start to see God's glory in election, I guess is the, is the, the thing. But then we get to one of, um, one of Paul's signature questions uh, in, and so uh, Romans 9, 14 through 18. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. For then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. For then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he pardons whomever he wills. So what's the question that Paul is asking here? Is there injustice on God's part? Yeah. Is there injustice with God? Is there unrighteousness because he chooses one person over the other? That's kind of what's on people's minds, right? Well, we all don't, don't deserve anything. We right. <laughs> yeah, so, so here Paul moves from the patriarchs into Moses and the Exodus. Um, so uh, Paul quotes uh, Exodus 33, 19, there in verse 15. Moses is back up on Mount Sinai uh, after Exodus 32, where Israel creates the golden calf. Um, so let's read Exodus 32, 28. So the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses, and about 3,000 men of the people fell that day. So... When we think about the, the story of the golden calf, how many bowed down and worshipped the golden calf? I think all Everybody, like the whole nation. And how many, how many died, Susan? How many did it say fell that day? Um, 3,000. 3,000. Israel had more than 3,000 people at that point in time. More than 3,000 people bowed down to this golden calf and yet only they only killed 3,000 people uh, and then uh, Exodus 32 33 
that's me. (laughs) The Lord replied to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. And so according to God, who deserved to be blotted out because of their sin? All of, all of them, all of us, anybody, anybody who sinned. So all of Israel deserved death. 3,000 died. God showed mercy to Israel. And then in, in 33, 19, where he quotes it here, he showed mercy to Moses after asking the Lord to remain present with the people. By definition, mercy cannot be an obligation. To say mercy is unfair is to say that it is owed to all people. In other words, when we say that that God's mercy is unfair, we are saying that God owes people salvation. Timothy Keller says nobody has a a claim upon God's mercy. If they did, it would no longer be mercy. Since the wages of sin is death, that's Romans 6, 23, the shock is not that God does not extend his compassion to everyone, but that he extends it to anyone. And so we have to have the right mindset about mercy. But then Paul gives us another example from the life of Moses, this time with Pharaoh. Israel was taken into slavery in Egypt. Um, Moses went to Pharaoh to try to give the Israelites their freedom. So Moses and Pharaoh were both sinners. Both had committed murder, if you remember. Both saw God work amazing wonders. And yet Moses was saved and Pharaoh was not. Now, if you look at the whole story from Exodus 4 through 14, we're not going to do that today, but you would see two phrases concerning the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. Um, In those chapters, Pharaoh's heart being hardened is mentioned 15 times. And first you would see that Pharaoh did it, and then you would see that God did it. Now, I know that that part does seem a little unfair, right? If God's the one that hardened Pharaoh's heart, then did he really give Pharaoh a chance? But yet again, this is why God gives us the whole Bible and why we study books at one time. Because if we go back and think about what we did the like second week, I think, Romans 1.24, I have that for somebody to read. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. So what did God do to the ungodly? He gave them up to the desires of their hearts, right? So he was, he, he, this is what God did to Pharaoh. God gave Pharaoh what he chose. God gave Pharaoh over to his own stubbornness. That's God's justice. So. <clears throat> it's part of God's justice. Yeah. Who are we to argue with God? We can resist God if we choose to do so. That's not very wise. Right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Timothy Keller says, when God hardens someone, he doesn't create the hardness. No. He simply allows the person to go his or her own way. 
God hardens those he wants to harden, and all those whom he hardens want to be hardened. So God gave Pharaoh the opportunity to repent, but Pharaoh resisted. The fault was not God's. And so, I'm sorry, who did you just quote there? Timothy Keller. It's his um, Romans, Romans for you or something. I, I, his commentary on it. I will give them, I will remove their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. It's almost like the sin make us hard. You know, yeah. until God gives us, until the Holy Spirit gives us a heart of flesh. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. It's a good question. And so we answered the question, is there injustice on God's part? And then we have um, verses 19 through 29. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory to vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles, as indeed he says in Hosea, those who are not my people I will call my people, and her who was not beloved I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved, for the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts has not left us offspring, we would, if the Lord of hosts had had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. So he asks a new question in, um, in verse 19. And what question does he ask? Yeah, it's who can resist the will of God, right? And so basically, there, there's he's still answering the question, is God just, right? He's, he's sort of continuing that, but that's the, the heart of this question. If God makes you like this, then how is that, how is that just? And, and Paul gives us three reasons that God is, in fact, just. Uh, first, in verses 19 through 21, we see that God has ownership rights. God created us and has authority over us. It's the, uh, the idea of, of what is molded, and the molder puts us back to Isaiah 45, 9. Did I give that one? Those who are nothing but half herds are not just half 
things on the ground. Does the clay say the potter, what are you making? Does the work say the potter has no hands? And this is just one of a few examples of, of references to a potter and the clay um, in, in the Bible, but the clay is completely passive. It has to be formed by the potter, and we are the clay in the hands of God. He made us, and we are sub to submit to him. Um, now I'm probably one of the few people in this room that uses tablecloths and cloth napkins. It's just how I was raised. We use a lot of paper too, but I set my table with a tablecloth. Um, last week, because of the weather, Catherine couldn't do one of her outside chores, so it became her job to, to wash the tablecloth and put the new one out and put out the new napkins and, and set up the table. And for the rest of the week, that tablecloth was kind of her baby. And so when someone would drop something onto the tablecloth, she would be like, <gasps> right? Because that was, that, was, that was what she was feeling. You could see with the look on her face, the body language, that she was almost hurt by the lack of care being taken of her tablecloth. <laughs> she had ownership over that tablecloth. And she wanted to have it taken care of. And so it's this idea of God's ownership of, that, that says, who are we to argue with God, like Sandy was saying. Um, then in verses 22 through 24, we see that God has his purposes in all things. Um, Exodus 3, 7. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their suffering. God didn't enjoy <laughs> watching Pharaoh crush his people. He endured it. And he was patient, trying to give Pharaoh an opportunity to be saved. Um, in, in our passage in Romans, verse 22, is the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. Again, Greek grammar thing, so just trust me here. Um, it, it's written in such a way that it implies that the vessels of wrath that, that prepared themselves for destruction, that it wasn't God that did it. It was, it was those vessels made themselves prepared for justice, for destruction. For, um, destruction I mean and so it wasn't it wasn't God that that did this um, some versions do sort of the way they're worded make it sound like God prepared them for destruction but um, when you go back to the Greek that's what the grammar tells us and if you want the big long detailed explanation about middle voice and past I have I can find it and email it to you. So, um, but God prepares men for glory. That's what, that's what verse 23 says. It prepares men for glory. Sinners prepare themselves for judgment. And God's ultimate purpose is to build his church from both the Jews and the Gentiles. 
And then in verse 25, Paul moves from writing about the Exodus to telling us about the prophets. And he, he tells us in, in, these, um, in these messages from some of the prophets that God is just because he told us that all this was going to happen. Paul is establishing that God has always worked to make and keep his promises. So he quotes four verses from the prophets, Hosea 2.23, that declares that God would turn from the Jews and call the Gentiles. Uh, that's there in 25. The, in 26, it's Hosea 1.10. And that's when he says that the new people would be called God's people. Uh, then in 27 is quoting Isaiah 10, 22 through 23 that talks about only a remnant of Israel being saved while most will suffer judgment. Um, and then finally is Isaiah 1, 9 there in verse 29 which declares the grace of God in sparing the believing remnant. And so God is, is just because he keeps his word. It would be unjust for him to say these things, to prophesy these, to, have, to tell these things to the prophets, for them to, to write down these things, and then God to just say, oh, never mind, forget I said that. That's where the injustice would be. Um, uh, Warren Wearsby says, At the Exodus, God rejected the Gentiles and chose the Jews, so that through the Jews he might save the Gentiles. The nation of Israel rejected his will, but this did not defeat his purposes. A remnant of Jews does believe, and God's word has been fulfilled. Israel's rejection of Christ does not deny the faithfulness of God. Romans 9 does not negate Romans 8. And so next week, we're going to look at uh, Romans 9, thir thir I think I wrote that down wrong. Yeah, Romans 9, verse 30 through 11, verse 10. Um, I know that sounds like a lot, but it's, it's not a massive amount. Um, so take the opportunity this, this week to read it, to slow down and to observe it, and then to see if you can figure out some way to apply it, to, to apply some aspect of it to your own life. Um. And then we will go to our small groups to talk things through.